And we are live with Detachment 075. Welcome back to the eighth episode of the Detachments podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Cadet Jerian Kihama. Of course, the company with me is members of the PA team. Right now, I have Cadet Third Class Abraham Kinghorn. And then accompanying us on this episode is going to be Cadet Third Class Daniel Black and Cadet Third Class Sharon Cardenas. Um, so welcome on, guys. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome our next guest to the podcast, Master Sergeant Janelle Gihama. Welcome on, sir. Thank you. Um, so for the listeners out there, um, can you give a quick introduction about yourself and uh, what it is you do in the Air Force? Sure can. I am Master Sergeant Janelle Gihama, and I am assigned to the 62nd Maintenance Group here at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, McCord Field, Washington. I am... Usually, uh, I am assigned with an AFSC of a 2A6X6, which is an aircraft electrical and environmental systems specialist. However, as a senior NCO, I hold a superintendent type position where I am now with a commander support staff here in my assignment. And I am overseeing numerous civilians and enlisted folks uh, to ensure that our mission moves forward. Specifically within the maintenance group, uh, we oversee missions uh, and taking care of our people. Thank you, sir. So I just wanted to ask you, sir, uh, first of all, good evening. And uh, and uh, I just want to ask you where it all started. You know, where did the, the journey to become an aircraft, you know, maintenance senior NCO start for you? Do you always have an affinity for the field or did you get out of BMT and you're like, this is cool? Or where did it really start? Well, it initially started uh, before I joined the Air Force. Uh, I was actually going into college, and it, and uh, the degree that I was see- seeking for was not for me. Uh, I was um, more into a hands-on type of person. I like being a, a mechanic type of person. So therefore, um, when I enlisted into the Air Force on the delayed entry pro- program, uh, a couple of career fields um, grabbed my attention. Majority of them were with aircraft maintenance, and because of me looking towards electrical and engineering type degree, uh, I wanted to work on planes and they gave me that specific assignment as uh, an aircraft electrical and environmental systems apprentice. Uh, and that started my journey after basic military training. Uh, and that was 20 years ago and here I am now. Right on. So you mentioned that you were a mechanically minded person. Did you ever hold, have any experience uh, with cars, trains, planes, automobiles? Um, did you have a job in high school, anything like that? Prior to the military, I did not. A lot of things interested me on was basically on how things work. Um, I enjoyed seeing things coming up from scratch and how they begin from a little motor and then they become into uh, um, some sort of engineering type of um, items such as a vehicle or even now an airplane. Uh, So it was just the drive that I wanted to learn that kind of stuff and and it got me into that career field that that I wanted to go into. Awesome sir. So you already mentioned that you went to college first, right? So we want to get into like that schooling and training part. So how did you decide that you wanted to enlist it and like stop college career? Okay, well, my college career was 
um, started over at California State University of Northridge, where I was focusing on a degree in computer science. I was into the degree for about a year and a half. And that's when I started thinking that that was not what I wanted to do. Um, while I was uh, growing up, I was always working on my car. I was either doing things to maintain it or to make it better. Um, and um, with that, I just wanted to do something outside of the computer field and when I decided to join the military, it was initially supposed to be with the Marines, uh, but my dad, who was an army guy, took me over to the Air Force recruiter and that's where the journey started for my career in the Air Force. So as an aircraft maintenance officer uh, after BMT, uh, what kind of education did you go through in order to become one? And like, was it type like, is it an apprenticeship or uh, did you have to learn uh, from like expert mechanics? things like that? Um, going into your question, aircraft maintenance officer or, uh, or maintenance? Because there's two different kinds. That's why I just want to make sure uh, where, where are you going with the question? Uh, I guess um, the question I'm asking is um, after BMT, uh, you wanted to, did you start, how did you begin in aircraft maintenance? What was the training like? Okay. Um, so in, in my early career, after basic military training, I was already assigned to the 2A6X6 AFSC. Um, and right after basic military training, I went straight to technical school over at Shepard Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, it was about a six month course where they were teaching me the apprentice basics of being an electrical and environmental systems mechanic on aircrafts. Uh, while I was doing that, um, it, gave me the basic system knowledge of how to troubleshoot and read wiring diagrams um, and understand how uh, how basic maintenance is done on, on the aircrafts the way that we're supposed to preferably rather than just doing it almost similar to what you're doing at home um, where sometimes you want to assemble a shelf and you have the idea of, hey, I know how to assemble the shelf and you start doing things without the instruction manual. Uh, doing it without an instruction manual, sometimes you end up having extra screws. And later on, you realize that the table does not want to stand up. In aircraft maintenance, of what we were, we were taught at basic military, or not basic military training, I'm sorry. Uh, in technical school, that's where they decided to teach us how to follow the technical orders to go by, step by step so that we, they ensure that we follow the instructions and to make sure that the parts that we replace on the aircraft are installed appropriately without any missing items and making sure that we use the right accessories that go along with the part, such as screws, bolts, nuts, washers, et cetera. So like, were there multiple schools that you had to go to for that? No, uh, for my specific career field, there was only one. Uh, however, there are other career fields within maintenance that has that have to be transferred over to another technical school. Uh, reason being is because sometimes they are required to learn on the specific airframe that they're going to work at. Um, good example is a is a jet mechanic slash propulsion mechanic. Uh, depending on what kind of engines that they're going to be using or working on. Uh, they will learn the basics at one specific school, and then they're going to get continued training 
at a specific base with the aircraft there. That way they can learn specifically uh, how either their jet, um, jet engine or uh, propulsion engine or even rotors for helicopters would work so that they can, they can, they can understand exactly how their, their field is gonna lead them into in the future. Whereas for mine, as an aircraft elect electrical and environmental systems craftsman, I would know exactly how the basics are for each airframe is. And when you think about it, my, my field is very broad, but it'll teach you how to do everything on every single airframe. Okay. Um, so would you say that there's like numerous different specialties with uh, aircraft maintenance, things like that? There is, uh, there, there, it starts off with, uh, with the foundation of an aircraft uh, crew chief where the crew chief is almost the overseer of the aircraft. They'll know every single missing item that's in there that needs to be installed, something that's broken. And then they will let um, production know what's wrong with the aircraft so they can assign a specific career field to fix it. Uh, for example, there are radars on the aircraft. There are engines on the aircraft. There are tires on the aircraft. And each, each one of those items that I have just mentioned are maintained by a specific aircraft specialty code. Uh, and each of those maintainers will focus on that and that only. Uh, the reason why we have our specific fields to focus on on the aircraft is so that we don't get complacent with other, um, other components on the plane that we shouldn't need to understand. Uh, that way, when everybody works together, uh, they make an aircraft fully mission capable for whatever mission that they needed to do. Thank you, sir. Uh, so for the next question, uh, when you were deciding upon career fields, I, I'm pretty sure you already touched on this, but like what motivated your decision to go into? Motivation uh, is basically the hands-on. Um, I, I, I didn't really like sitting behind a desk. I didn't want to really um, just manage um, numbers and everything and statistics of what keeps on breaking on the plane. I didn't want to just uh, focus on in-house stuff. I actually wanted to be out there, go with the planes. I wanted to fly with the planes. I wanted to be with the planes. So when something went wrong, I would be able to know how to troubleshoot it, maintain it and get it fixed so that it can move on to its next destination. That makes sense, sir. So did the job that you picked meet up your expectations or was it kind of different or what do you think uh, now? I I actually enjoyed it. I loved it. I love it. I actually miss working on the planes. Uh, it's just as Frank progresses, uh, you, you start moving into other things where it's it leads into management and everything. Um, I actually, um, before, at first, it was one of those things where I was working overtime. I almost didn't like it. I wanted to just quit sometimes. Um, sometimes it took me away from family and everything. I couldn't keep in touch with anybody because I was working 12 hours, sometimes more. Uh, and then when I would get home, I would just want to sleep and then continue on with the next day. Um, but now where I'm at right now, I actually miss it. Um, I miss turning the wrenches. I actually miss working with the people. Um, that's that, that, that whenever I'm wa wandering around at work and I see people working on a plane, uh, it, it, it's a 
different perspective of them because they're looking at me and they're like, oh, a senior NCO is coming by and then they got to act either all professional or they try to hide because they don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to ask them to do. Um, but majority of the times that I go out there, I just want to be out there just to see how they're doing because um, the, the folks that are turning wrenches out there, I, I realize are the foundation of where we're at right now with, with these airplanes uh, to keep them maintained, uh, keeping the fleet healthy. Uh, that way, everybody can do their mission. So what you just described is kind of a typical dilemma that, that I, I've heard about a lot. It's like when you're from um, enlisted personnel to senior NCO, you kind of turn from that, um, you know, the brotherhood, the camaraderie of, you know, being there to being the boss and, you know, how that can sometimes affect your relationships with people. So can you go more into depth uh, in that regard? So I believe you had to go to NCO Academy, right? And after that, that you come back, you're, you're an NCO. How did things change and how did, how did you deal with it? Going into the NCO Academy, it, was, uh, it, it, op- it reopened my eyes into the Air Force because at the time I went to that, I was a technical sergeant. I, or wait, which one are we referring to NCO? Yes. So we did, I did go as a te- uh, an e- E6 technical sergeant and I call it re-bluing. It was more into uh, um, understanding the foundations of the Air Force, how people have different perspectives of how they operate, how they manage, how they lead. Uh, and thinking about it, it, it opened up my eyes to where I could understand exactly where everybody are coming from. Uh, because you can't have everybody acting the same way. Diversity is the big, big thing that we need in the Air Force. So we could get different ideas, different perspectives from others, uh, whether it's ideas, their leadership styles, their management styles, however, the, how, how they operate. Uh, those are the key factors on what we look for so that we can ensure um, we move forward with whatever we need others to move forward with. Um, managing the young airmen out there, sometimes it could be different. Uh, they, they have their perspectives too. That's why we have to take their considerations as a factor of how we're going to operate and move forward with things. Um, however, it just has to be done the right way. Understood. Got it. Thank you. So I'd, I'd like to, to shift momentum into sort of like a, a question upon real world applications. So I know mm-hmm. uh, being that it's, it's maintenance, um, it sort of applies to citizens as well. Um, for those cadets that are mechanically inclined now that are experienced that would like to get into this field, is turning wrenches on their car at home um, for other things in the same way applicable to turning wrenches on an airplane, even though there is a multi-billion dollar cost difference? For a cadet, whether it's at home or on an aircraft, uh, it's the same concept. However, turning wrenches is not for everybody. Uh, some people, um, it, it'll, it's like second nature where they can turn a wrench or a ratchet or figure out how a part fits into uh, a small, small um, component area on an aircraft or in a vehicle. Where, uh, whereas there are those people where they'll look at it and they'll say, oh, I don't know how it goes. Um, sometimes it's a matter of finding alternate means of how you make things work while you're turning wrenches. Uh, so that just in case if you're missing a specific tool, um, however, in the Air Force, there is no alternate tool we have 
all the tools that um, that we need to maintain the aircraft um, according to speculations uh, or specifications. Sorry. Um, and Jerry can contest that because many times we were when when I came over for vacation one time um, we were working on his car and he enjoyed it and I could see the that he is me mechanically inclined um, but in in my career I've seen some folks that actually join the aircraft maintenance field and I'll give them a ratchet or a screwdriver or some sort of tool and these are basic tools that anybody would have at home however they just don't have that mechanical um knowledge of how to use the tool in specific um areas on a vehicle or on a plane and that's that's uh it, it's not uh the greatest scene to watch i mean it could be funny sometimes but um when you're thinking about it uh these folks are the ones that you're going to be leaving alone in, in the later future um, so sometimes the career field is not for them. Um, so that would have to reflect on their ratings um, if it cannot be fixed. And uh, there are times where we have to force cross train them into another field where um, it'll benefit them um, more than what they are right now, uh, currently doing. I was going to say, you, you brought up the analogy before. If you're working on your car, you can definitely have the leftover screws and be fine and, and go on with your day to day. Oh yeah, absolutely. But if you're working on an aircraft and it's worth a couple of billion and you've got leftover screws, the pilot might want to be a little hesitant to fly that one. Well, I have seen, I have seen those, uh, those are unacceptable, um, to a certain extent. Sometimes, uh, that's why earlier in the beginning, I was talking about technical orders back in tech school. Uh, there are supplements in the books where it, actually allows you to be, have missing items on an aircraft. However, it can't exceed that much because if it does, then it's a no-go, it would ground the aircraft and you would have to fix that, um, that issue before the plane could fly. Uh, so there are stringent rules out there that we have to follow and make sure that uh, once we install parts, the goal is to be at 100%. However, there are those times where we have to um, make adjustments and exceptions to turn instructions so that we know exactly what uh what is authorized and what is not authorized if it is not authorized then uh, you have to make sure that you uh complete all taskings accordingly otherwise uh you can be in a lot of trouble so then would you suggest uh for cadets at home working on their own personal vehicle to sort of gain that sense of um mechanic experience to get their hands involved and, and to sort of gain an aspect as to whether or not they like the field? Absolutely. Um, with, with anybody in general um, that is planning to join the, uh, a mechanical field in, in the Air Force, I would highly recommend them to see if they are mechanically inclined uh, on the outside prior to coming into this field. Uh, because uh, as, as an enlisted member for me working with officers, if an officer is not mechanically inclined, it is hard to, for them to understand exactly what a mechanic is doing on a plane. And especially with young lieutenants briefing, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, and so forth, uh, if that officer cannot, um, cannot explain exactly what, uh, what is going on on the aircraft, then um, it, it's not gonna look good for that officer. 
so I highly recommend that they are mechanically inclined prior to coming into this field. So based, based off real life applications, what have you put your hands on and worked on uh, in the Air Force? Uh, so in the Air Force, my career, I've worked on three different airframes. I've worked on C-17 Globemaster three, the C-5 models A, B, C, and M models, and also the B-1B bomber. Uh, with all three airframes, they accomplish different missions, and I have had my hands on on numerous components on those planes, uh, whether it's something to do with the landing gear, uh, to um, air conditioning, uh, if a wire touches it, a lot of times I'm the one that's looking at it to verify that it is good or bad. And if something's bad, then I'd have to either replace something, uh, whether it's a quick fix or it could be a couple of days to get something done. Um, uh, specific components, uh, there are those air conditioning packs, there are those lighting issues, there are those uh, components where it leads into uh, the doors, uh, steering, um, you name it. Uh, if a wire touches it, uh, ma majority of the times uh, they, uh, they point fingers at me saying, hey, it's your turn to go take a look at this. So in specific, you said that you've worked on so many various aircrafts and I had a, a, a question uh, noting on that. Okay. Are, are um, because of the different iterations of models and airframes, are um, parts and, and pieces and motors intercompatible between the two? Are you mm. experienced on those and they change over from plane to plane? Or? Oh yeah, um, with different components out there, uh, they do vary in diff different locations, sizes. Uh, it, 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 it really varies. It, it, you could be working on a big airplane or a small airplane and uh, the sizes of the components uh, would would depend on uh, what you're working on. Um, some of these components, they could be really small, but the, some, there are those components where they are just outrageous that you need some, some sort of lift to carry it and place it in the right location. All right, now, so moving on to your personal career in the Air Force, what was your favorite assignment and uh, why specifically? Did you go anywhere like a certain base you liked? Did you work on a model that you really liked? What was what was really exciting for you? Um, out of all the assignments that I've been to, I think my favorite was over at Insulik Air Base in Turkey, uh, where I was able to see real world missions come through um, as they were taking care of either humanitarian missions or whether they were supporting um, the the troops over in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, pretty much in remote locations where um, some people don't even wish to be at. Um, for work-wise over there, it was it was pretty busy. Uh, we would be working 12-hour shifts uh, and, and watching planes come in and out. Uh, I was there for approximately 15 months doing that almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And nearing the time that I was actually leaving Insulik Air Base, uh, that's when stuff started kicking off with Syria. And they were pre preparing the base to evacuate all of the uh, dependents uh, for safety reasons. Um, and seeing the, the massive amount of aircraft that was flying into the base for routine training uh, gave us a visual of exactly what was uh, to come with later on in the future. And uh, 
as it was already announced in the news uh, a couple years ago, that's when they decided to evacuate the, the civilians and the dependents prior to the Insulik airbase air lockdown. I can see why that was your favorite assignment. Um, I would like to ask you, where have you been stationed at and how often do you deploy as, an, as a maintenance officer? I have PCS uh, pri uh, permanent change of stations to five different assignments. Uh, I started off here at McCord Air Force Base back in 2000. I, I was here for about two years, then I moved over to Anderson Air Force Base, Guam. Then after a couple of years over there, I moved over to Dias Air Force Base in Texas. Uh, uh, after that was uh, Insulik Air Base, Turkey, and then back here to McCord Air Force Base. Uh, so I did five piece, uh, primary uh, permanent change of stations. Uh, but within those uh, five assignments, I served three, um, three tours um, outside uh, within the AOR over there in, um, in um, at uh, Qatar. Uh, where else have I been to? I did um, maintenance response teams to the Philippines to recover uh, some of the planes over there that um, that were damaged. Um, I I I went to numerous locations where I can't even say it's just <laughs> one of those things. Um, uh, just to recover planes, uh, a lot of times it's because there was a malfunction on these planes that couldn't. Uh, couldn't take off where, from where they were located at and they require maintenance. Uh, whenever these occurrences happen, that's when they start calling out to say, hey, we need somebody to come here. And uh, depending on the career field that's needed, they would be dispatched to go over there to recover the plane. All right, so earlier in the question, you mentioned that you were stationed in Turkey. It's a lot of turmoil yeah. right um, over there right now. Do you have any desire to return, help out the base that you were once stationed at? Uh, I would never say no uh, to any assignment. Uh, whenever they say, hey, um, uh, we have this opening, would you like to go over there? Uh, then I, I greatly accept it. However, it's just in a different position now as a senior NCO of what job I would actually take upon. Um, because now as in, in the management field, I would be more of a overseeing and be more of a production type of a superintendent rather than Hey, I'd go out there and actually turn wrenches. Got it. Okay. Now moving more towards the uh, turning wrenches, like you said, yeah. what are some some of the misconceptions really about this career field that you would like to clear up for any of the cadets out there? Misconceptions. I hear that it takes a lot of your time away from family, friends, your free time, uh, especially in the early years of the career field. Uh, which is true. However, it goes back into time management and leadership. Uh, your leadership's always looking towards a successful mission. However, taking care of your people is the biggest thing. Uh, knowing that the, the younger airmen out there are turning wrenches and uh, bleeding out there on the line, just trying to get things, uh, get things working so that the plane could fly is one thing. Uh, but making sure that they are in good spirit is another. So um, looking, looking back at it, 
just management and everything, it, it would be a great, great career. Um, you shouldn't really have any misconceptions because uh, it, it is one of those things where you are going into a maintenance career field. Uh, I look at it as a lot of people in the career field have thick skin. Uh, they just move forward with what they're doing and the majority of them actually enjoy it. Um, it's just a matter of making sure that as an, a leader and a manager, you have to take care of your people uh, so that they know that there is a lot of good coming out of the missions, uh, giving them that information of the mission, letting them know that, hey, this is your end product saying uh, that you have a help transport this much cargo or this specific type of cargo, whether it's humanitarian aid, you, you, you fed millions of people on an island that was completely stranded that's a humanitarian mission. Uh, letting letting these young folks know that hey, they did a lot of good and what they've accomplished um, goes a long way, and it makes them want to strive for more and keep on going and and uh, not think about the negatives that are out there. Right, right, and that's good to keep in mind. So, being that cadets, um, all the cadets are looking into becoming an officer. Um, what are the real main differences between the two enlisted and officer, um, and like? what do officers do from the get-go being an aircraft maintenance officer? Uh, from my experience between enlisted and officer, an officer has um, a mission to fulfill. Not saying that the enlisted side does not. Um, they the, the officers have to focus on getting the mission accomplished. That's why they're enlisted leaders that take care of the people and also to back their people up because sometimes there are times where uh, a senior enlisted um, member has to actually step in between an officer and the enlisted force. Uh, the reason why I say that is because when an officer wants to say, hey, I need five planes by the end of this week because we need to send them to uh, a remote location to fulfill a mission. Yes, that's a high priority. Uh, we need to get th those planes there. However, is it realistic? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes we could get three planes out of the five, uh, and that's where the enlisted comes in to try to um, try to negotiate with the officer, saying this is what's reality versus what we're trying to push. And if we focus more on reality, uh, we can always reach out for other help in other means, such as asking from other bases, um, because we are not a one-based air force. We are. Uh, multi-located type uh, military um, branch that can actually network and utilize other agencies out there that can fulfill our mission. Um, so there are roles and responsibilities for each side, whether it's an officer or an enlisted member. Uh, enlisted members, uh, we will turn the wrenches, we will make things happen. However, it's a matter of leadership and how we take care of our folks and how to find that happy medium between what the officer wants, what the mission is, and what we can actually get in um, in, in a realistic view. So this may be a, a harsh comparison in a way, but is the comparison between the comparison in the workforce between officers and enlisted sort of similar to the way a, a dealership functions and the way that they have uh, service technicians and they as well have administration. Can the same be said for that field? Are they? Um, we can look at it that way because it, it all comes in tiers as far as for rank positions, job descriptions, what your roles and responsibilities are. 
so depending on what your core responsibilities are in the Air Force, uh, that is, it is your goal to accomplish those and fulfill them to, to the best of your ability. Um, so when, when it comes down to my roles and responsibilities, my, my job is to ensure that the enlisted, um, the enlisted folks are taken care of appropriately. However, I also have to look at what our, our end mission is supposed to come out as and help fulfill that by talking to our enlisted folks. Uh, because, because me not being a, a wrench turner anymore, it, it's harder to explain that to the enlisted folks sometimes because they're thinking, oh, you're a senior enlisted uh, officer. It's, uh, are, are, you, um, are you trying to just back uh, the officer up, which a lot of times it is. However, I have to also look at what's best for my enlisted force. So as you mentioned, um, officers have to focus more on accomplishing the mission, right? So I would like to know what's the relationship that we as officers are going to have with the enlisted people. So how often do we relate with you guys or how, how does it work in this specific field? I have uh, seen a lot of officers interacting with the enlisted members on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the best thing that I've seen is when uh, they get to know the enlisted force so that when things need to get done, everybody has that, uh, that mentality of, hey, um, he's not a bad, he or she's not a bad guy or gal. Um, so whatever they want, I'll take care of it and I'll make it happen. And that's also on, how I look at it, it's it's pretty much on the saying, uh, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, sort of thing, uh, where we help each other out. Um, because it is not a one-man team in the Air Force, it's everybody that works together to make this uh, work uh, and make everything be as successful as we, um, we see it already. So staying on the thematics and sort of keeping on topic uh, within the podcast, uh, we'd now like to shift over into sort of the average day, uh, as well as the experiences for an aircraft maintenance uh, senior NCO. Um, so can you run us through uh, the standard typical day uh, in the life and as well as your schedule? Sure. Um, so currently as a senior NCO, uh, I would have banker hours, as we all call it. So I would show up, uh, my, my duty hours are actually 07 to 0430. I would um, be there earlier than that just to ensure that my day is ready to go smoothly rather than starting exactly at 0730 and not knowing exactly what's going on because you never know if the commander would actually come through and ask what's going on. Uh, so it's always uh, best for me to stay ahead of schedule and know exactly what, uh, what's going on on the agenda before everybody shows up. Uh, that is a typical day for me where I would follow through with the agenda, ensuring that the commander is on track for all his meetings um, and to ensure that all my enlisted folks are accounted for and with no issues. Uh, and that is typically a life where I'm at now. Um, should I go with uh, the junior tiers as well? You can. Okay, uh, so going into the junior tiers, so I'm going uh, from Airman basic all the way up to a technical sergeant. A lot of times those folks would work in random hours. We have uh, the day shift, mid shift, and a uh, swing shift. Uh, so three different shifts that would operate on an eight hour um, 
time shift uh, where all of them are working on planes to make sure that the mission keeps going through. Uh, with, with the exception of sometimes we would have to hold people back for 12 hours just so that due to um, due to manning cuts. Uh, when I say manning cuts is because of the whole COVID currently going on right now. Uh, we're limiting how many people are actually at work uh, so so that uh, it it reduces the interaction with uh, from one person to another. Um, they would be out there turning wrenches uh, from day in to day out. Uh, when they walk in, they would know what uh, what their taskers are for the day. Uh, they'll start off by going to our CTK, which is a composite toolkit, uh, aka tool crib as we call it, uh, to grab the necessary tools that they'll need to fulfill the jobs that are requested of them. Um, and they would pretty much go to work, um, do, do their thing and, uh, pretty much, uh, come back in for turnover to either say whether the job is done or they need somebody to continue on. So to touch on that, is there something that you would do with like the enlisted folks to, you know, to keep everyone involved? kind of like something for fun that you do as a group? Oh, absolutely. Um, every now and then we have uh, outside of wingman day and uh, training day, we would have sports days. We would have um, gatherings such as barbecues, uh, cookouts, potlucks. Uh, coming up at the end of November, we're having an, uh, a chili cook-off so people can compete in saying who has the best chili. Uh, so we would do uh a lot of fun things out of the ordinary just to keep um them active knowing that we're here for them and keeping their spirits up uh all of this is on the purpose of morale so uh we always want to make sure that uh these opportunities are, are are there and will always be there for them uh, because without it um a lot of these folks will think that all they're here for is to turn wrenches and move on to the next day so as in your position, how do you um, kind of like guide enlisted men to, you know, the physical fitness side of the house? How do you keep track of them <clears throat> or, you know, make sure that they're doing the right thing? Um, are we focused on physical fitness or? Yes, doing physical right? fitness. Okay. okay, so going into physical fitness, it is a known fact that everybody is responsible for their own fitness. However, there are times where we have to ensure that they are doing what they're doing because sometimes we can tell. Uh, some people like to eat a lot and then they start growing and all of a sudden it's like, hey, what's going on with your health? Um, and there is, as you know, a biannual or annual uh, physical fitness test. Um, those are performed and for us to prevent any issues coming up during their, their fitness exams, uh, we usually hold a three month prior to pretest uh, to see where they're at. And, and it's, it's not um, bad to fail because at least it lets us in the leadership side know that, hey, this individual needs help. Um, and it is our goal to get them the help that they need. Uh, that way, when they take the official fitness test, uh, we can ensure that they have a passing uh, score rather than seeing them fail. Because I feel personally that if they fail on that, it's a failure on leadership to uh, help ensure that member is going to pass their test. Uh, so moving back on uh, topic here um, and redefining sort of 
the average day and experiences for an aircraft maintenance officer. Um, can you define sort of in your terms, how it feels? Is the schedule daunting? Is it difficult? Are you just always sort of caught off guard with the amount of work? Is it important deadlines that have to be met often? Can you just describe it? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so there are deadlines on majority of the things that I have tasked ahead of me, uh, whether it's contracting, um, when uh, a plane is expected to be fixed, or when we're supposed to deploy somebody. Um, however, there's always that flexibility. Uh, flexibility is key to making things happen because sometimes we do have to push things over to the right where we have to extend deadlines. Uh, but there are certain risk factors that we got to look into first before we do that. Uh, so before we have to extend deadlines, we have to understand what we're going to affect if there's going to be uh, issues with other agencies that are supposed to get with us to fulfill those taskers. Um, so it, 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 it varies on what we're going to what we have to do to accomplish. Thank you, sir. Um, so what would you tell, um, cadets that aspires to be future aircraft maintenance officers, what advice would you give them, um, for like the future, for their future? So for cadets that are looking into the aircraft maintenance field, I would, uh, highly recommend to, uh, have them get with enlisted folks and get with an aircraft officer. Uh, that way they can get the, the broad experience of, a maintainer's life uh, because there, there are a lot of people that are involved just to ensure that maintenance is done right, um, mission is moving forward, and most of all, um, that our, our, our airmen are taken care of. Uh, so uh, as, as y'all um, make your rounds possibly to uh, Air Force bases um, in your local area or outside of your local area, um, ask questions from, from other maintainers because everybody has their own perspective of how maintenance is, whether you're an officer or whether you're an enlisted airman. Uh, everybody has their views. Um, some of them are right, some of them are wrong. Some of them you'll just look at them and say, what, what am I getting myself into? Um, but it, it's a real world out there where you're, you're working with uh, an aircraft maintenance uh, personnel. So, yeah, definitely. So this this next question I have, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to it. And uh, that's because it carries a lot of weight with it. And I'm sure that in a career field like maintenance, a lot, uh, a lot gravitates around mistakes and mistakes happen and mistakes have happened. I'm sure during your experience in the maintenance squadron and whether mm -hmm. it was on your end or on someone else's how did you approach it how do you approach it fix it move on and especially when these mistakes can result in millions of dollars worth of damage and uh in some cases life oh absolutely um mistakes do happen and i agree yeah everybody makes mistakes to include myself nobody's perfect however the biggest thing when a mistake happens is to admit the mistake because even though there are going to be repercussions toward those mistakes um, you'll be able to have, um, have the issues fixed in, in a quicker manner rather than saying, oh, I know I did something wrong. You hold back on it. Later on, somebody's going to find it, and now there's going to be a big mess to fix. Um, so 
with, with issues out there in, in, in the maintenance career field, there are people that are taking shortcuts. Um, we do have our quality assurance uh, over here within the maintenance group that go out and do random inspections on aircrafts or aircraft maintenance um, in general. Uh, if they see something that looks out of the ordinary, they're going to they're gonna write it up and verify that if it's done right or wrong. And if it's done wrong, they'll investigate to see who did the work last and, and go from there. Uh, so if you know you did something wrong, best bet is to admit saying, hey, something's wrong on the plane and it needs to get fixed fast before the plane takes off. So I definitely like where you're headed um, in that answer. Do you think you could elaborate a little more into you know the process afterwards? A process as far as for mistakes? Sure, yeah. If, if something goes okay. wrong, you know, like what, what usually happens? And, oh, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. A lot of times, um, a lot of times it's a first, first offense. Um, let's talk about when I did my time with quality assurance. Um, I was, um, I was with, working with quality assurance uh, about two years ago, and they would go out there and evaluate um, maintenance on an aircraft by seeing if uh, a part was installed properly. And let's say we find a component installed on one of the avionics racks. And these are just computer boxes that look like um, almost the size of a small toaster at home. Uh, it would be installed and they would have two little clamps that secure it into place. Uh, and for some odd reason, the maintainer prior to that did the job failed to install one of the fasteners um that on them especially when they signed it off saying that the job was completed now that our quality assurance has found that they would report that not only to their their superintendent but it would also go to the group commander their squadron commander and it would funnel all, all the way down to where that member would have to um stand in front of the commander and explain why they failed to um to complete the job right and to sign it off saying that it was completed um, there are times where complacency does happen and the maintainer would assume that they'd put the, the, um, the clamps back on because they've done it so many times. Uh, and we wouldn't have the capabilities of looking at their job history and seeing if they, if this is a recurring offense or if this is the very first mistake that this individual has had. Majority of the times it's, uh, it's, it's a first offense and we would usually documented in a soft document saying, hey, this has happened before, but it wouldn't really follow them through. It'll just be for our records so that if for some odd reason it becomes a trend, we would, um, we, we would be able to uh, escalate our, our issue with the individual and possibly either relocate them or uh, just give them a letter of counseling saying, this is gonna be on your permanent records until you PCS out of here. Thank you. Yeah, we definitely appreciate the insight. So now we'd like to move on over into leadership in this particular AFC and, and sort of what it entails. So as a senior NCO officer uh, within aircraft maintenance, are you often um, boots on the ground and leading firsthand? And if so, do you have a particular leadership style that you go to? Uh, as far as for boots on the ground, um, it depends on the, the field that you're in as a senior NCO. Well, there are those where they are production um, superintendents, where they are actually on the line working with the planes, 
and they do have boots on the ground, they will they would be able to oversee the maintainers turning wrenches as they green up planes for missions and let them go. Um, also, there are those other senior NCOs in, in my field where we would become either section chiefs or um, or in different positions where we're like working for the maintenance group staff. Uh, so it varies on where they're at. Um, in my in, in my case, I am working with the maintenance group staff, so I don't have boots on the ground on the air on the actual aircraft. That's why earlier I mentioned that I actually do miss turn wrenches every now and then. Uh, but on on where I'm at right now, it it opens up my eyes to see other other um, other things that I have not seen when I was turning wrenches. I am able to see the process of analysis and how they can determine by gathering all the data of what parts have been changed on the plane, what 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 um parts decide to fail more uh, more often, and whether it happens at a certain season or just in a timely basis, and also scheduling. I I get to see how they plan and execute missions by saying, hey, we have these planes, let's go ahead and put them up for missions because I highly doubt it that they're gonna they're gonna fail during their um their two two week uh mission depending on their support. So touching up in this leadership style question, what is an example of bad leadership that you have witnessed during your career? Uh, it goes back with the same thing with the officer as well. Um, it's uh, the failure to follow up. Um, when 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 I've seen leaders out there saying, "Hey, I need," uh, or or even bad guidance, there are times where they'll give taskers saying, "Hey, I need um, I need you to revamp how an actuator on this aircraft should be installed. Do you have better ways? Uh, because we're having issues with it." Or just recently, um, we had a plane land where the one of the gears failed to deploy, and they had to land with it gear up. Uh, leaders could always task um, the enlisted folks to to find out from their experience what can make this better. What should we have different parts, or should we um, should we design it differently? Um, an airman could be working on that for a couple of days with no guidance and not know exactly what the leader wants. And then when the leader, uh, when leadership comes over and says, hey, do you have um, that information? That airman might not have it because they don't know exactly where the, the senior NCO is, uh, is trying to get to. Um, so a good follow-up would always be great. Um, whether, whether the airman knows what they're doing or not, uh, just staying on track with them to ensure that the pro progress is moving forward. Uh, that's what um, I say is that defines between good and bad leadership at times. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, so as a master sergeant, it's a very pronounced title. So what do peers typically expect of you as a master sergeant in the Air Force? As a master sergeant, they expect you to be a good leader, a good follower. Um, have open ears that way they uh, they know that they can talk to you um, but however you just got to keep in mind as a master sergeant also you can't have a uh, one-way conversation uh, you can't just let them talk to you also and let it out the other and not even uh, understand the what what they're trying to say that way 
in my position when that happens, I need to make sure that the individual is taken care of if they have any issues. Uh, two, they're getting the training that they need. And three, uh, what their expectations that they want out, out of you is also, um, is also there for them because it, it's a two-way street. Um, if, if you're not giving them what they want, then later on when you need them for something, uh, they might not be there for you. Definitely. Um, so this kind of goes back a little bit. We might be backtracking a little bit, but when an aircraft goes down due to a mechanical error, how much responsibility uh, do you feel? And does the squadron feel? And what steps does leadership take to uh, combat it, really? Oh, good question. Uh, when a failure happens, the first thing is an investigation to determine what exactly happened. Uh, they would they would bring it down to the last maintenance action that was done on the aircraft. Uh, they would see who did the maintenance and whether they would be at fault or not. Um, did the proper operational checks occur after they changed the specific parts? Uh, were there any issues prior to like a historical, um, historical concerns that happened? Did it happen before? Uh, those are the questions that we would ask in the leadership perspective and look into it while the investigation is going on. Um, after we determine what had happened, um, it can go two ways. It can go as a mechanical failure that, yes, the parts do go bad. Um, so we would get with a manufacturer. Uh, for now, like right now, I'm working on the C-17s. Uh, we, would, we would lead towards Boeing and say, hey, this had happened the part failed, what are you guys gonna do to prevent this from happening in the future? Um, however, there are also those causes where it is the airman's fault. Um, the airman either penciled up the document saying they fixed it, they did an operational check, they checked it good, and now the plane is in, a, is in another location and it's broke because of you. Um, and that would go into similar to what I was talking about with quality assurance. Uh, they would talk to the airmen, see exactly what their background is, uh, what their experience is on the job, and if they are blatantly at fault or if it was just an accident. Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely interesting, especially what you had to say about working and uh, communicating with the companies like Boeing, Northrop, Lockheed. Uh, do you think you could elaborate on that just a little bit? And, you know, really give us an insight into what the communications between the Air Force and these uh, companies that we give defense contracts to um, when things like this happen. Oh, yeah. Um, that was uh, actually one of my jobs um, about two years ago with Quality Assurance. I was actually the, the liaison between our maintenance group and Boeing. So uh, working with Boeing, I was the the voice and ears for the commander uh for the c-17s and everything so if anything needed to be done uh he would tell me exactly what he wants and i would have to project his voice out to boeing because when it comes to these planes we in the air force are the customers of boeing and boeing wants to keep it that way so there uh, the communication to boeing is to say hey can, can you get this thing fixed and they'll they'll start their process on whether it's they're gonna redesign something, change the parts to uh, a new type or change manufacturers. Uh, 
the working relationship between both sides, Air Force and Boeing, or any other um, aerospace uh, company out there, um, is is pretty good. Um, there are no issues uh, because they they just want to keep the business going. Um, and we've never had any real hiccups with Boeing. They've uh, taken care of us. Uh, they've been providing us with engineering experiences, uh, changes, uh, and rewrites on books to make it better for our airmen. Glad to hear. Uh, definitely seems like you you experienced a lot uh, just dealing with that communication role between Boeing and the Air Force. Um, but now, so uh, diving into the topic of um, the future of the Air Force for uh, aircraft maintenance officers, being that the, the Air Force has some of the most insane uh, aircrafts on the planet, obviously we all know this, and it only gets more and more crazier and complex and unique uh, each and every year as, as technology advances. Is the job getting harder for you guys? Is it getting easier? Do you guys have oh, okay. more um, now? I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Um, with the way that aircraft maintenance is going nowadays and new technology arising, um, it's always a learning curve. There, everybody is learning on the new technologies that are being installed on these aircraft. When it comes to the maintainer, uh, it's just the responsibility to adapt and, and adjust to everything going on uh, with, with these planes. And sometimes uh, it's for the better, sometimes it's for the worse. I've seen a lot where they'll change a component which is supposed to extend the, the lifespan of the aircraft or its component on the plane. Uh, but it could be a, um, um, not easy for a maintainer to replace it because it's been relocated or it's just not a simple task for them to accomplish. Whereas if it comes to uh, the new innovation of technology, uh, let's say, for example, the F-22 Raptor, uh, they are able to plug in a computer to the plane and operate everything from that computer to, to validate components and to troubleshoot and figuring out exactly what's wrong with the plane. Sort of like uh, so an onboard diagnostic port? Exactly. Uh, so with that, with that uh, on that plane, that's what a lot, of plan um, a lot of companies are looking now into the future. For these planes, they'd be able to plug in computers to determine what's wrong on the plane and help the maintenance, maintenance personnel out to expedite the troubleshooting and replace the component faster. Sir, what have your experiences been with the brand new lieutenants? Like, what are some good things they brought to the table and what are, what are some bad um, habits that they brought to the table? Okay, uh, for brand new lieutenants, uh, they, there are goods and bads. I've seen some where they just wanted to spearhead and get ahead of things uh, with brand new ideas. Uh, for example, I've had this one lieutenant who, um, well, I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of the, uh, the electrical and environmental systems backshop where we fix components in-house. Uh, he wanted to reinvent a battery uh, for the aircraft. And I told him uh, that is something that we can't do. Uh, and he said, why not? And I said, it's because that's why we pay the big dollars for so that a company out there can validate that the batteries are built to meet FAA standards. And he's like, well, when you think about it, these are like car batteries. They just have the, the liquid, they have the, the components inside and you charge it up and it's good. And I said, well, yeah, it's simple. However, are you gonna take responsible for that uh, if, it goes on, if it catches on fire on an aircraft? 
he didn't get back to me on that. So he started reaching out to other people and it's, it, it kind of uh, put me in a position where it's like, okay, he doesn't want to listen. Um, and there are times where that, that, that's a pet, uh, pet peeve of many. I know that already. Uh, but that's one thing to take into consideration is uh, listen to the folks out there because sometimes they have that experience. And even though you all, you are um, a young lieutenant trying to get ahead of things, sometimes uh, there are there are way, reasons of why things are the way it is. Um, and on another note, with uh, let's let's go move on with the uh, with the good side of a lieutenant that's trying to understand uh, maintenance. From uh, from an enlisted perspective, uh, I had this one lieutenant that wanted to actually understand what's going on, what we do on a day to day basis, and actually go out there and turn some wrenches so he could understand what components were changing, what it does, and why we're changing it. That way, he could also track uh, how often these components go bad. Um, going back into the historical researches of what components go bad on the plane. If they already have that in the back of their minds uh, and a colonel asks what's going on, that lieutenant is gonna just shine when he or she decides to say, well, sir, this is what I got from uh, this, this uh, squadron and I've seen this component go bad three times already. Uh, we need to look into the future of how we're gonna prevent this stuff from happening because it's gonna just cost us more money. Um, so that would be an example of a good young lieutenant trying to get ahead of things by understanding what's going on and knowing the answers. So when the colonel would ask questions, the answer is there. Awesome. So what do you say like brand new LT should um, listen to the uh, um, enlisted folk and get, gain as much insight as possible and like also be down there in the trenches and with their enlisted personnel too? I'm not, I'm not saying that they have to actually be there and turn wrenches. They can be out there and be on the side because just seeing officers out there understanding what we're doing in the enlisted side uh, makes us feel like, hey, they, they, they want to be there for us. They want to understand what we're doing rather than just being behind the scenes and asking us questions through email or, um, or at a roll call. Uh, it's, it's not, um, how do you call it? I, I, don't, I don't feel it's a... It kind of puts us on the spot because at a roll call, you're in front of a crowd and, and it almost makes it seem like you're not doing your job as an enlisted member. Um, so them understanding uh, that they would be out there working with you while you're working, uh, it just makes us feel better and know that they're a part of the team, we're a part of the team, and we're not just thrown out to the, to the plane to just turn the wrenches and make things happen. Thank you for that insight, sir. So we're nearing the end of the podcast and we're coming up on a question that we ask every guest on the show. And that is, what does leadership mean to you? Leadership, leadership means a lot. Uh, there are those goods and there are those bads. Uh, however, you can't exclude the bads because you learn from them. Uh, as I was growing up in the early years in the Air Force, I always had these bad leadership, bad supervisors and I always wanted to just ignore them. However, now that I'm in a position where I'm at, uh, I kind of learned from it. I learned what kind of um, styles of leadership is available to me, uh, what I can or cannot use. And it makes me understand how 
everybody else uh, works around me. Um, because as a manager, I cannot uh, treat somebody else differently. However, I could adjust how I uh, talk to other people because of how they are. I want to treat people the way that they should be treated, not because I feel like, oh, this is how you're going to be treated. I've got to take, I, I'm going to treat everybody the same. Uh, I don't expect them to treat me the same way as I treat them because I'm different. I'm, I, I have a thicker skin, so I, I stand on my ground pretty good. However, I've never really ran into that situation. Um, it's, it's always a learning curve. There's always uh, those leaders out there that, um, that want to run a certain way. Um, but sometimes you just got to bite your tongue and move forward. Thank you very much, sir. So this has been episode eight of Lied with Debt 075. I am one of your co-hosts, Cadet Third Class, Sharon Gihama. Of course, members of the PA team is here as well, Cadet Third Class, Abraham Kinghorn. Accompanied with us is Cadet Third Class, Daniel Black, and Cadet Third Class, Sharon Cardenas. And as always, this has been a pleasure speaking with you, sir. Um, Master Sergeant Janelle Gihama. Thank you. All right. Pleasure having you on. Same here. Thanks for having me.